listening to the CIPD podcast series. Welcome to the latest CIPD podcast. This time we'll be looking at learning and development, an area that can find itself squeezed during times of economic turmoil. So in this programme, our focus is on the link between learning and business performance. We'll be paying particular attention to the value that learning delivers and the ways it can contribute to current and future performance, even in tighter economic times. We've chatted with learning and development professionals from three very different organisations, each offering their insights into the impact of coaching and cultural change initiatives where they work. But to begin with, I talked to leadership, strategy and innovation consultant Max McKeown about learning and development in the current climate. You're listening to the CIPD podcast series. One of the big worries facing HR practitioners at the moment is that they're hearing on every news programme about the economic downturn. They're seeing before their very eyes their training and development budgets getting smaller and smaller or disappearing entirely. How, how do they tackle that? How do they continue to work on inspiring people and and combating indifference when they just don't have a lot of money to play with? Well, the obvious answer on perhaps tackling organisational senior management's reluctance to spend, the the two answers, I think. First is to show that the organisations that spend wisely in this period come out better after every recession. So I would have said, create one graph that shows this dramatically with all the references and show it to as many people as you can in the organisation. And demonstrate the value of the investment. just demonstrate it, say, time and time again, the iPod was invented in the recession and so on and so forth. So first of all, that's the time when your competitors are the weakest because they're scared and being scared is not conducive to innovation. So that's the first one. But the second one is that why not be the, uh, the first one to actually say, hey, we can do more with less, that's all right. Um, but so can you. And if we're going to take cuts, you can too. And the reason for saying this, it's a little Machiavellian, but the HR profession is viewed as the soft profession. It's viewed as the one that will stick their hand up and say, oh, we've got to save those poor little people and the training budgets, and then you just slap them about and they cut anyway. If HR at this point is saying some counterintuitive things, then it grabs the agenda from those other people who say the answer is always cutting. So if you were an HR practitioner within an organisation and you had your training budget, what would you be spending it on right now? Would you be allocating it specifically to the people you perceive to be your real winners over the next few years, or would you be spreading it across the board in order to motivate and enthuse people? Well, I would save some money for getting my top team to open up their eyes to, to things. I think that that's still important and coaching usually doesn't happen at the top level it happens at sort of just below the top level and just breeds resentment and frustration with all the bad things the big boss is doing so I would spend some money there but I would also take a chunk of it if I have sufficient money and allocate it allow the staff to allocate where it is spent would you Uh, indeed because they know what they need an interesting approach to allocating spending budgets there. Next, I caught up with Mark Wilcox. He's director and founder of Red Thread Consulting, and he shared his views on the role of learning and development in leading and motivating people at work. People don't follow out of duty and respect anymore. They follow people because there's something in it for them. Uh, the psychological contracts definitely changing, and it's between leaders and individuals now. So people join organisations, but they leave leaders, they leave managers, that's, that's well-researched and known. And it's the treatment between individual leaders and people in the team, people who are working to deliver change, that matters. And I think 
you know, within that, there's what am I going to get out of this? You know, so I come to work, I give you my efforts. Uh, if you get it right and I get engaged, you get my discretionary effort. You get that level of performance beyond average. But what do I get in return? And that's often not just money. It's often about opportunity. It's often about skills development. It's often about visibility in the organisation in terms of people's careers. So I think you know, the agenda for HR professionals is, is trying to get leaders to develop a style of leadership that is not one-size-fits-all, that is very much personalised and very much replaces what used to be you know, the corporate contract with individuals with an individual contract, leader and team member. As you say, it, it's all about the numbers, isn't it? Because uh, you know, one can readily see how you can deal with individuals as individuals within a small organisation or a small team. How do you do this if you're actually dealing with a lot of people? Um, Is it really practical? It's, well, it's only practical in the sense of it gets results. And the absence of it gets mediocre results. You know, if you want exemplary performance from everybody in your team, then you have to treat everybody as individuals and work towards what's exemplary for them. And that's about different levels of skill, different levels of motivation and will. You know, the match isn't always the same. So if you want average, then treat people average. If you want exemplary performance, treat people as individuals and help them excel. And, yeah, that puts a pressure on the leader. That puts a pressure on anybody who's managing people. But, hey, you know, not everybody should step into that space if they can't do it. Making the best use of time, be it for learning, creativity or day-to-day operational work, is certainly a heightened challenge in tougher times. Max McKeon gave me his thoughts on how to do that. First of all, do your inventory. You find out what you've got, not what you need. First of all, you take a list and you say, well, what, how much time do I have of a week? How much money do I already have? What uh, buildings, materials? And how can I rejig the use of those activities to make it more likely that people be creative and satisfied at work or, or dissatisfied and move towards something better? So meetings... In good times and bad, managers increase the number of meetings that they have. Um, You may have noticed. Because they feel the need for activity. Well, in a boom, you need more meetings to increase performance. Are we making the most of our opportunities? And in bad times, you have meetings to check up on everybody and make sure they're not wasting any money. Uh, Both of those tend to clog the arteries uh, and lead to some kind of heart condition. Rather than saying, hey, I'm the boss of my people, I can't do anything about my boss, but what I can do is look at their calendar and take out whole swathes of responsibilities and say, what can you do with that amount of time? So Google time, they give their people a day a week. It's entirely possible to create half a day a week for your people um, to do something else. You say that lightly, but I think, you know, most managers would throw their hands up in horror at the idea that they would devote half a day of their people's time every week to not doing the job they're paying for. I'm not entirely certain if I agree. I think people say they want efficiency, but they know they need time to think. Some people convince themselves that pressure brings out the best in them, but that's really just as making the best of a bad situation. We've got to, so, so we do it. I think you would actually find that most people, certainly in the middle, the middle managers know they need more time. They know by extension their people need more time to think and solve things and talk to customers and, and figure out a better way and lack perhaps the courage of those convictions that if I do it, nothing's going to go wrong. And really nothing is. We've heard some interesting reflections there on how to find the time and the money needed to maintain learning when circumstances mean both resources are in short supply. There certainly is compelling evidence that organisations that do are the ones that thrive when better times return. Our latest annual learning and development survey has much more on the approaches organisations are taking right now. 
You can find the report at cipd.co.uk slash surveys. The report highlights a continued growth in the use of coaching. It's certainly grown in popularity since the last time we saw a downturn in the economy, and it's an intervention that can boost individual and organisational performance without necessarily suffering if budgets tighten, particularly if you've done the groundwork already. You're listening to the CIPD podcast series. One of the UK's largest public sector organisations, the Metropolitan Police, employing some 60,000 people, took what was for them a step in a new direction when they introduced coaching. I asked Jackie Keddy, the Met's lead consultant for coaching and action learning, about where they began. Where we started was with 12 individuals that were initially coached, who began to coach three coaches each, which is 36 from three boroughs and one crime directorate. And it just mushroomed. The evaluation was extremely robust. It would be because it's public money we're talking about and I'm very cost conscious. And I run this really on a shoestring. Um, But the benefits that we're beginning to see emerge through coaching um, and the feedback we're getting from the coachees and the coaches are worth their weight in gold, really, as far as the organisation is concerned. So what sort of benefits are you actually seeing? Some of the feedback from individuals has been, don't ask why we're coaching, but why not? Um, One newly promoted officer that was given coaching during the first 100 days said it's reaffirmed my commitment to the organisation. It's made me feel, yeah, valued. It's made me feel really supported. And the benefits that I'm seeing is that it's breaking down some of those concepts of hierarchical leadership. Um, And it's getting the best out of your team. And we've gone on from coaching as per se, as this bolt-on, and from it being seen a bit pink and fluffy and a bit sort of tree-huggy, into really delivering performance. And... Everybody within the Met knows about coaching. Marion Fanthorpe is Head of HR Development at the London Borough of Camden, a well-performing council with around 8,000 staff and a budget of £245 million. She's been focused on delivering cultural change within the organisation and I asked her what Camden were trying to achieve when they brought her in. I think they were trying to uh, identify how to move the organisation forward. Uh, I think the chief executive had come in and and fairly new, and I think she began to realise that what had made us successful wasn't going to continue to make us successful. Uh, But I think she realised that before we started to get in a slip slip down. Um, So we were about changing. One of the the key drivers was cost. Uh, She coined the phrase that we were living beyond our means. So the way the whole programme started was actually a much more... Uh, belt and braces traditional kind of management efficiency program um, which you know could have kind of taken its course and we'd have taken costs out but actually we said no hang on let's think about this uh, and do something that might change the attitudes and the behaviours in the organisation so we don't get in this situation again but we build something that's going to sustain change in the longer term. I mean as you say this is a local authority you were working with an environment where, where budgets were were tightening presumably you didn't have an unlimited pot of money to throw at this process so so how did you work within those constraints? Uh, no we had very small budgets we spent very little money on the, the process a little bit of money on producing some uh, you know cards and handouts and a bit of money on some uh, conferences and events but we didn't essentially use a large budget we uh, worked with groups of managers and worked with existing structures 
um, and got out and did as much face-to-face work as we could, put some simple tools on the intranet for managers to use, used our inter- existing internal communications. So um, if we'd wanted to do a branding exercise, we wouldn't have been able to afford it. So. <laughs> Another good reason for not doing one. <laughs> Absolutely. So how did the uh, people working within Camden respond to this as time went on? There was an instant hit um, with the values because they did really resonate for people and we framed them in little phrases said this does mean and this doesn't mean and people really latched onto that but also uh, well it wasn't luck but there was a sense in which these values were really working for us and they were really hitting the spot so that was a a very good start really. Next I caught up with an organisation quite different from the Met or Camden the prominent retailer Selfridges But, like the Met, they found that coaching conversations really suited how they wanted their organisation and people to develop. I asked Caroline Darker, who's their learning and development manager, how they introduced coaching and why it worked for them. We've introduced um, some coaching training. We've also have really sort of thought about how do we want learning to happen at Selfridges. Now Selfridges is, as everybody knows, a fast-paced retailer, incredibly fast-paced. You know, the decision makers are there all the time. It's not like a multi-site retailer where, you know, you have to wait for things to drip through a thousand stores. You know, if we make a decision, it can quite often be out on the floor that day, that hour, whatever. Um, So we needed something that enabled people to do those jobs very quickly what we didn't want is to take people offline for huge chunks of time either in a training room or in um, you know conversations away from the action away from the floor so we wanted to work with an organization that enabled us to give people those skills to coach whilst also enabling people to do their jobs um, and I think that's where we've got to. Um, one of the key things that we we do is talk about um, response or curbside coaching. So what we talk about there is not about going off into the room to have grand coaching conversations or even grand development conversations, though those do happen, but just to have a coach it response to everyday matters. Give me an example. So, well, for an example, um, would be, you know, you've got a new delivery coming in, you know, it's going to hit the floor at 12 o'clock. So the, the initial reaction would be, oh, you know, you know to, to your manager, what am I going to do with this? And in typical times, they would say, right, I want you to take that. I want you to, to arrange it like this. And you need to do that by 1230 because it needs to be done by peak trade. And what we're encouraging people to say is, OK, well, what do you think you could do? What are your options? What are the types of things you need to think about? Okay, what are the, uh, you know, what, what are the things that you're that are going to hinder you, and get them just to come up with their own solution and self manage and self manage and in the hope that the next time a delivery comes in or you know after three times of going through that approach they might say oh delivery coming in okay what could I do I could do this I'm going to do that I'm going to just check in with my manager to say I'm going to do that is this okay. And then you go and do it. Um, And just, it's absolutely, in the end, it saves time. It makes people more empowered. It hopefully makes them more motivated and passionate about their roles. And also enables us to release some potential in what is, you know, the huge, you know, numbers of people that we have working, particularly on the shop floor. All three of the organisations we spoke to are using learning and development interventions to help deliver cultural change. I asked Camden's Marion Fanthorpe if there were any tricks to adopt when you've been charged with delivering cultural change in your organisation. 
I think you've just got to have some real confidence uh, in yourself. I think the, the key piece of advice is it's long-term stuff uh, and to avoid big bangs and quick hits because uh, they can, I suspect, uh, cause more damage. It's about taking it more slowly and enabling it to be embedded and just to persist uh, and to do what you think is right for the organisation and resist all the gains that the naysayers and to resist um, some of the traditional ways of, of doing it and to have confidence to... Stay with it. I finished up by asking Mark Wilcox about the importance to organisations of targeting the right learning at the right people. What we find is that the companies that really embrace wanting to be an excellent organisation recognise that that means different levels of output from different people, different levels of input, and that you know, even the research is, is supporting it now, that, that single reward systems, single policies, single you know, sets of benefits, single ways of doing people's appraisals spread out across a company, all they do is reduce everything to the average. So you become a mediocre copy of a mediocre copy of another company. Whereas if you actually differentiate and you look at what it is that it takes to get an individual to perform really well, then you start to get really positive output from everybody. You add all that up and you get... The classic, you know, synergy two plus two equals seven and a half. So you're talking about really highly tailored solutions for every individual within an organisation. It's a lot of input, isn't it? I'm talking about highly tailored individual solutions for the right people in the organisation. Okay, I'm so not it's a talent management. It's talent management and it's of the critical few. There'll be somewhere between 10 and 200 people in your organisation that if you get the deal right for them will significantly affect the performance of your organisation. In the particular economic climate we're dealing with at the moment, the question of budgets is going to be a very key one for everyone in the, in the area of learning and development, as indeed in every other area of, of corporate and employment life. Presumably, you would argue that as people's budgets get tighter, this is even more the way to go forward, to really target very tightly where you put your resources, because the, 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 the link between where the money goes and the results you're getting is going to be... A, focused on even, even more closely than it has been it's before. It's going to be even more visible and even more critical to the organisation. And the other thing that you've got to look at is if you've got smart people and you don't work with them in terms of their development, then they'll leave. So you can have a veneer-thin, you know, one-size-fits-everybody approach and lose the people that you should really retain. And that's what I think is, is focused development is a far more productive output for an organisation. No matter how you go about it, getting the right learning and development interventions in place can be crucial to sustaining performance. It may be a bigger challenge to get this message across when the economy is giving people the jitters, but our guests in this podcast certainly do believe that investing rather than cutting back is the best way to ride out any storm that may be heading our way. If you'd like to know more about our guests or the issues explored in this podcast, you can find the notes that accompany the programme at cipd.co.uk slash podcasts. Next time, we'll be talking about the global challenges facing HR with a panel of international experts from Europe, America and India. Until then, goodbye. You've been listening to the CIPD podcast series.